Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It is Friday, August 5th, and today, Eric Gardner is here. Eric is here to talk about the Murdoch family being on the defensive in a Delaware courtroom over how Fox News covered 2020. And later on, we hear part of Puck's Twitter Spaces recording with Ben Landy and Julia Yaffe. Ben and Julia talk about Brittany Griner being sentenced to nine years in Russian prison and what that could mean for Russia-U.S. relations. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. We are here with Eric Gardner. Eric, thanks for coming by. Oh, thanks for having me. Eric, you have been writing about the libel and defamation claims that Fox Corp is facing right now. And there's a case that heads to trial in April, which I assume most listeners have heard about, filed by Dominion, which is the voting machine manufacturer that if you listen to Fox News in the uh, aftermath of the 2020 election, was responsible for tons and tons of election fraud. And clearly, uh, Joe Biden did not win. Clearly, it was the fault of this voting machine company. The voting machine company in question has since filed uh, a defamation case against Fox. And you've been writing about the ways in which this is going to end. Can you refresh us on what exactly Fox talent were saying about Dominion? And what might be defamatory about it? Sure, absolutely. Well, to take it back to the aftermath of the 2020 election, it took about a week until uh, it became clear that Joe Biden had the necessary votes to be declared the winner. And in the, the weeks after that, Trump was on his microphone saying, you know, this election was stolen from me. He and his people were looking for basically any excuse to deny Biden the uh, electoral votes. And one of the things that they seized upon was this voting company that had administered the election. And so Trump and his uh, acolytes, particularly uh, Giuliani and Sidney Powell, started accusing this company of emanating from Venezuela. This company was born to flip elections for Hugo Chavez. They came to America and uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, all these votes that had been cast for Trump, you know, suddenly uh, were cast for for Biden. So they started making these allegations in early December of 2020. Dominion, of course, heard them and and started sending cease and desist letters to Fox saying, you know, here's the truth. Stop saying these lies. Stop spreading this, you know, propaganda. It's not going to end well, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I'd have to say that it it wasn't all of Fox's talent. Uh, It was in particular a few really diehard, you know, Trumpians like uh, Lou Dobbs and and Janine Pirro. There were others on Fox who were a little more clear-headed. They reacted to these uh, cease and desist letters by, you know, having on fact checkers who can like provide the other side. But this went on for quite some time. And, you know, now we mm-hmm. have this lawsuit over these conspiracy lies. Dominion says that this has destroyed their business, that they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts or future contracts because of this. They're, you know, asserting billions of dollars in damages. That's one of the reasons why we're paying attention right. to this case is there's so much on the line here, so much at stake. If Dominion wins this case, then what other, you know, possible 
things might Fox News get into trouble for, for things that are said pretty much nightly on Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity's program. Right. I'm thinking about, you know, people who tried to calculate the real world impact of Fox hosts comments about COVID, for instance, you know, people who might have died from COVID because of something I heard on Tucker, like, does this open the floodgates to, you know, not necessarily that specifically, but complaints or, or you know, lawsuits like that. The other thing that, that I should point out here is that this case is taking place in Delaware, Joe Biden's home state. Teddy Schleifer's home state. Oh, there you go. One of the states that, that has no cap on punitive damages either. So that's a very important wrinkle, which means that if a, a jury finds that Fox News is liable for, for these statements and wants to send a message to attempt to deter Fox News from ever doing it again, they could pick some extreme number. They could look at, you know, revenues for the year and, and you know, come up with some multiple of that. So that's the scary right. prospect that, that Fox News has to face besides just, you know, an airing out of everything that was happening at that network in the, in the few months uh, after the election. Eric, what is the best case that Fox can make here? I and mean, what is the case they are making? First of all, you know, the best uh, defense <laughs> to defamation is, is you know, the things that you were saying is true. But, it, you know, it doesn't sound to me like truth is the rallying card that Fox News is, is playing here. They're certainly looking into, you know, whether they can, like, prove up some of the statements about, about Dominion. I mean, if they did, then there would be there would be much bigger consequences than, than this lawsuit, right? Right, right. Exactly. But, but so, no, I think their main point is that these allegations were primarily coming from Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell. And so how could it be liable to give a microphone to the nation's leader or the nation's leader's representatives? They're saying when a public official makes such a newsworthy charge, the responsible thing for a media outlet is to report it first, investigate it second. You know, they tried in the first phase of this case to get the judge to adopt that standard what's called a neutral report privilege, where you don't pick a side and you dispassionately just report what the public figure is saying. And the problem the judge says is that, number one, that's not the rule in libel law. And number two, there's quite a bit of evidence that Fox News might not have been so dispassionate when reporting this. So um, on both elements, that failed. And, you know, I expect that they'll still come up with some way to make that argument that if it goes to trial, that narrative that that all they were doing was they were just handing the microphone to Trump and his guests and they were just echoing what whatever they said. And to stop that is, you know, to diminish free speech. And that will lead to all sorts of consequences. They might point to something like, you know, well, BuzzFeed published the Trump dossier without vetting it. They're going to try to make the narrative that they didn't really do anything wrong. If there was anything wrong that was happening, if blame the people who were mouthing. In a way, you know, the defense is going to be blame Trump. Eric, you make the case that you think that for all the uh, the fun that we would have and the media circus that would develop the Murdochs if this went to a Delaware courtroom, that you think there's an off ramp here. And a lot of this revolves around E&O insurance, right? Sure. Uh, E&O stands for errors in emission and, and uh, pretty much all media companies have it. It covers, you know, things like normal day libel routine stuff. I've known companies to have, you know, 25, 50, 75 million dollars 
But I think that actually Fox has quite a bit more here because they have something beyond the insurance. The plaintiff, Dominion, what they're trying to do is they're not just suing Fox News. They're suing Fox News' parent company, Fox Corporation. That's the, the Rupert Murdoch one. And the parent companies usually have a big umbrella policy that covers pretty much all employment claims. And there could be hundreds of millions of dollars in that pot. I don't think it's an accident whatsoever that plaintiffs have sued the parent company. It's not because they hate Murdoch or something like that. It's because they know that there's a much bigger pot and potentially that could be a pot that plays a big factor if there's a settlement. We're talking about a potential settlement worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And that you know could be the key to ending this case. Now, you know, Dominion's asserting billions of dollars of damages. So, you know what? It, it might not even be a sure thing that hundreds of millions of dollars would satisfy them. But on the other hand, you know, any trial is risky and it's tough to just take a $300 million offer and walk away unless unless your name is like Juan Soto or something that you, you most often you're going to uh, accept Going that. there, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so you, you think the likeliest outcome here is that there's a settlement E&O insurer pays, the Murdochs admit some, I guess there's the admission through settlement, but not really an admission of, of any significance. Yeah, I don't know if there'd be any admission of, of wrongdoing. I mean, maybe that's what Dominion will ask for and to savage their company. But when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, usually the financial stuff takes first priority. I'd say 90, 95 times out of 100, there's no admission whatsoever. You know, the parties keep things confidential. We might learn about the settlement in some SEC filing months down the line, or it could go to trial and, and we can have a big, you know, show, but we'll, we'll see. My bet right now is on settlement, but uh, it's a jump ball right now. Eric, if you go to Delaware, I know one of, uh, one of the three restaurants in the state that I will, I will send you to. Thanks. I uh, look forward to taking that tip. Happy Friday. This is Alex Bigler. Today, in lieu of Feedback Friday, we're going to listen in on a Twitter spaces that Julia Yaffe did with our executive editor, Ben Landy, yesterday, right after the news broke of Brittany Griner's sentencing. Julia talks about what the nine-year sentencing is meant to signal and what this means as the U.S. negotiates a prisoner swap. We have breaking news conversations like this frequently on Twitter, so if it's something you're interested in, make sure to follow us there. Without further ado, Julia and Ben. Obviously, a Russian court just found uh, Brittany Griner guilty of an attempt to smuggle narcotics into Russia. She got nine years in a, in a penal colony. Um, what do you make of that particular number, nine years? And, and what does it say about the message Russia is sending here? So the maximum sentence she was facing under this charge was 10 years. The prosecutor asked for nine and a half and she got nine. So in the context, it's a little less than what she could have gotten. So it's seen, I think, as a little bit more lenient, a little bit more gentle than the maximum. And I think that's because the Russian government wants to keep really good negotiating position for itself. So the longer the sentence, the longer that they can keep her in a penal colony, the more pressure this puts on the Biden administration to get her out. And that means that 
the Biden administration has to cough up more valuable prisoners in exchange for Griner's freedom. Talk to me a little bit about the sort of social media narrative and outrage that surrounded this, because Griner, obviously, she was a, a star player at Baylor. She's drafted to the WNBA. She's got big endorsements from Nike. She, she's at the Olympics. But there was a sense that maybe Griner w- was not a big enough priority for the Biden administration. And, and there was outcry on social media to the extent of um, this wouldn't have happened to like LeBron James. Like Le- LeBron James, they would have traded him immediately. And, and you've kind of said like, no, that's not actually how this works. Tell, tell me a little bit more about what Griner's particular celebrity has meant in terms of how the, the Biden administration has negotiated here. Well, I think there's a few things going on. I think, you know, this wouldn't have happened to LeBron James because LeBron James makes plenty of money in the States and he wouldn't have had to go to a dangerous country like Russia to make money. So that's number one. Number two is I was speaking with a former very high ranking national security official who dealt with the Kremlin very frequently during their time in the White House. And this person said, you know, it's it's bunk, essentially, that if LeBron James had been taken prisoner in Russia, we would have gotten him back tomorrow. If they had taken LeBron James, we'd never get him back because he is such a high value hostage that the Russians could ask for the impossible to get him back. Because the more high value the hostage, the more impossible the ask and the more they can basically bend the White House over a barrel. From what I understand, the Biden administration was working to try to get Brittany Griner back. That said, Brittany Griner had the extraordinarily bad luck of getting arrested a week before Russia invaded Ukraine. So was she the top of the agenda for the Biden administration in dealing with Russia? Probably not. There was also absolutely no relationship There was no channel of communication anymore through which the Kremlin and the White House could communicate about her. So if you notice, uh, Tony Blinken only spoke to his Russian counterpart, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, last week. And that's the first time he's spoken to him since the war broke out. So basically, it's been almost six months since the foreign ministers of Russia and uh, and the U.S. have spoken because of this war. And it's about Brittany Griner. Has she been a top priority? No, because there is a war going on in which uh, tens of thousands of people are being killed. And I would argue, yes, uh, Brittany Griner is very important and she's an athlete and a celebrity. Is she more important than tens of thousands of civilians being killed in a horrific land war? I think that's a tougher argument to make. It's horrible bad luck that she was essentially taken hostage a week before this war happened. And I think by the time the news reached, probably that day, reached Putin's desk, that that's, uh, that's who they had in custody. Putin probably already knew that he was, I mean, definitely already knew that he was going to invade Ukraine. And now he had this really big fish in his net. This is all to say that I think it's just like a string of really extraordinary bad luck mm-hmm. for Brittany Griner. And also I think, for the Russians uh, and for the people who are in the Russian government who are, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but as a rule, they are quite anti-American, quite racist, extremely homophobic. They have caught in their net a woman who is 
not just American, at a time of really heightened anti-American furor, who is Black, gay, and she is caught with drugs. So there's this kind of, she's like this image of everything they're fighting against. Because what you're seeing in, in a lot of Russian propaganda is that they're fighting for in Ukraine is traditional values of like Christian whiteness and traditional values. And they're fighting against gender bending, like multiracial Westerners, if that makes sense. And then here you have this tall, black, gender non-conforming American with drugs. It feeds into another narrative in Russia, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a truly horrific situation. Mm-hmm. I feel for her too. It, it just feels yeah. so deeply unfair that she has become yep. this geopolitical pawn. Last last question for you. I, I just want to ask you to sort of make a prediction for how long this negotiation might stretch out. Is what's next for Brittany Griner dependent on sort of the next turn in the Ukraine war? Do, uh, do the Russians want to move her, her quickly while they're still fighting this to give them some sort of leverage or to give Putin some kind of domestic political win? What is sort of the, the broader context of the conflict with Ukraine potentially mean for the timeline of her getting out before these nine years? I don't think that she's going to serve the full nine years. I also don't think she's going to get out tomorrow or next week. I think she'll end up serving at least a few months of this, if not maybe a year or two. I think it's going to be a slow process. And I'm not sure what what will be the thing that makes the deal go through. I get from my administration sources is that it's, it's not really moving. And they're not sensing much of an appetite for Moscow to make this deal go through, which is really worrying for Griner, right? On the other hand, we could wake up one morning and hear that it's done and that she's like on a tarmac somewhere and it, and is being swapped because Putin woke up on one side of the bed and decided. So I, that's a really unsatisfying answer. I feel like it could be months or years or it could happen in a snap. But I do think she's going to end up she won't serve the full nine years or even like five years, but I think she'll serve a chunk of it, unfortunately. And I really feel for her because it is so shitty for something so small to be now in a penal colony for, I don't know, months or years is just unthinkable. Julia, thank you so much for uh, taking time to explain all this. I know you'll, um, you'll have more forthcoming in your newsletter, which we're publishing on Puck, coming out on Tuesday. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for asking such good questions and being an amazing Sherpa for our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Hey there, Alex again. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, we're hosting an in-person event in New York City on Wednesday, August 10th. That's right, next week, exclusively for Puck subscribers and featuring the talent and creators of Hulu's Emmy-nominated show, The Dropout. But everyone knows that the real draw here is that it's hosted by the one and only Matt Bellany. This event is live and in-person and it's only for Puck subscribers. So if you're interested in attending, email fritz at puck.news to learn more. Thanks so much and have a great weekend. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 